Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 29 with Chris Derrick, the CEO of Order Esports or Order Army as they're known. Chris comes from a traditional industry, which is just like what we talked about in the last podcast with James Bryce Lynn from Big in episode number 28. For any of the show notes for the episode today, make sure you head to bigesports.gg forward slash 29, which is 29. And for our last podcast, you can head back to 28. Funnily enough, all of the numbers, they all line up with what the podcast number is. But today we talk a lot about Chris's history in the space. He's coming from the traditional media agency land space with a bit of a stint in the AFL, which is the Australian Football League, which is uh, arguably the largest code and most popular football code here in Australia. And then we start to drill down into order. Uh, We talk about what order does differently to the rest. We talk about their public equity crowdfunding model, which is something we haven't seen before in Australia, outside investment, and the development of sponsorship and pay a bit of homage back to episode 22 with Ann Matthews talking about the development of sponsorship over this period of time, how long and how hard it is to get new brands into the space. So without further ado, we'll kick into a quick commercial and then straight into the podcast. We've chosen PLE Computers as a supporter of Big Esports because they believe in supporting the growth of the market just like we do. What we're really excited to work with them with is a whole bunch of initiatives, anything from our coursework, teaching people about how to open up their own esports startups or get a job in the industry or transfer from others, to creating live meets for people to meet together, to network and develop new partnerships and opportunities, to this online podcast as well. PLE Computers is one of the largest online PC retailers in Australia, focusing on gaming and performance hardware. So you can check them out if you're interested in buying any new products or purchasing a brand new gaming PC. Chris, welcome, mate. It's probably the first cold day here in Melbourne today and you've decided to come in on the bike. So how'd you find it? Well, as you say, it's very cold. I've got the gloves out, but I cycle every day. So it's gradually been getting colder and I'm, I'm hopefully used to it. Yeah, living like a living like a true Melburnian, I guess. Well, you know, when when you get to a certain point in life with a career and family, what have you, time is short, so it's my only form of exercise really, so I've got to make the most of it. Yeah, got to get in when you can. So I guess we'll we'll kick off straight away with, you know, how we do basically every single podcast and ask you just about your your professional background and, you know, kind of the steps you've taken over this time because you know, like we talked about in our last podcast, there's there's been a real surge recently of people coming from traditional and other business industries into esports and similar for you too. So I just want to start by unpacking that. Sure. So my background is in product development and marketing, uh, particularly with a sort of digital bent, including uh, about three years making mobile games when I was living in the UK. Uh, came back to Australia in 2001. Uh, no, sorry, 2007, uh, worked for Cricket Australia, started off running their digital products, particularly their live scoring and their live video subscription products before moving into their media rights team and helping them with the digital side of their media rights strategy. Uh, worked with Vodafone on their first app, did their first social strategy, a uh, bunch of other stuff there before moving into other forms of media, uh, predominantly music videos. Uh, ended up at Southern Cross Stereo as head of digital strategy and partnerships. And as part of my remit there, I was looking at all forms of new media, high growth media that Southern Cross might potentially move into. And one of those was esports. I left there uh, early 2018 and ended up at the AFL, helping them commercialize what they were doing in 
esports, their partnership with Riot Games, and from there ended up at the CEO of Order, where I am now. Yeah, fantastic. So I just go want to kick it off, I guess, with traditional media mm-hmm. um, and just ask you some questions about that because a lot of our listeners are within the esports industry already and, and running their own startups. So could you give just a quick spin on the traditional media's interpretation of esports, especially from the SEA angle? You mentioned that, you know, you got tasked there with investigating esports. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously some mm-hmm. interest, but we haven't seen a massive play yet by SCA or pretty much any other traditional media in the space. So what's the interest and, and what's stopping them from jumping in with both feet? Look, I mean, I think the interest comes uh, from the fact that it's growing, that it's got an audience there and that that, that audience is of a demographic that uh, marketers in particular want to reach and ultimately mm. a media business does two things it creates content that it distributes to an audience and it monetizes it it might monetize it via advertising subscriptions sponsorships what have you all um, revenue models that are pretty similar to esports so from a, a traditional media company's point of view if you can pick up an esports business or find an entry into it it's got a lot of similarities and a lot of extensions into what they're currently doing anyway Mm. what's stopping them um there are a couple of different uh reasons i think one one is scale to find something in the australian market that's of significant scale when you're talking about take a company of southern cross stereo they're doing hundreds of million dollars of revenue they've got staff of 2500 people their offices all over the country Mm. what what opportunities are there in esports that are actually meaningful for them and i think a lot of the bigger companies have got that same question everyone is very interested in it but ultimately esports is still very early in terms of the monetization and the the commercial models here in australia and it's probably still a bit too early for them and it's not quite meaningful enough yeah and that yeah that definitely makes sense to me and i guess what you know what we talk about a bit um you know here in the podcast and what i do a bit with big is try to use influencers to prop up a lot of what esports is happening in the moment and do you think that the the gap in esports so for, for I guess trying to unpack a little bit what you're identifying is that there's a bit of knowledge about esports out there. There's knowledge of the growth, but it's the scale that's not of size. Is it competitors? Is it digital reach? Is it a mixture of multiple different things that haven't hit scale yet? I think one of the other issues is around the data and the reporting and, and the analytics of that. So mm. the if you talk about the other end of the scale, you've got Google and Facebook who are reaching you know, 14, 15 million Australians and they've got a lot of information about them and they can report back. And uh, as a marketer, you can essentially know if I spend X with that platform, I'll get a Y return. I'll get yeah. this increase in sales. I'll get this increase in brand consideration, et cetera, et cetera. Getting the data from the platforms where esports is broadcast or from the, the uh, publishers of those games for either a league, a team, even an individual to be able to package that up and report back and show how you're going to get an ROI at scale is, is a real challenge, not just for, for order, but for kind of everyone in esports. Yeah, it's very true. And I've, I've experienced that personally as well, where you know, you come to a realisation that ultimately if you're pushing an influencer sponsorship to a brand, you're, you're fighting against Google AdWords and you're fighting against, you know, Facebook mm-hmm. advertising. And we ran into exactly that same thing for us where, uh, you know, a client said, well, I know what my CPM is. I know what my conversion rate is. So can you prove to me that this influencer you're working with, you know, statistics aside, can 
can make me X amount of sales in my return on investment, plus a bit of you know extra brand money. It's all well and good talking about the size of the audience or your reach or, or even when you do have scale, but how is that going to convert and what is that going to deliver? Because mm. they're comparing esports, whether it's a, a sponsorship or whether it's doing something with an influencer, they're comparing that to other forms of digital media, but they're also comparing it to other forms of sponsorship. And if you're a sponsorship manager sitting at a um, non-endemic FMCG, what have you type brand, you're getting a lot of sponsorship proposals coming across your desk from traditional sports, from from music, from festivals, what have you, and and mm. you know more and more from esports companies as well. So you've really got to be able to prove why someone should invest with you as opposed to one of those other options. And is it a bit of a detriment to esports that there's not really any grey that you can um, advertise in? So, for example, say TV or billboards or or live events, there's always a little bit of a grey that you can price up. You can talk about eyeballs and, and public traffic that's walking through. But when you're pushing esports, you're pushing mainly digital mediums. So you're pushing through Twitch and Twitter, et cetera. So there's absolutely no grey area. All the numbers are out there on the table. Uh I, I think it probably goes the other way. Um, certainly, we try to position it the other way in that that's the audience, that they're highly engaged and mm. they're very open to uh, brand partnerships that they feel are genuine, authentic and adding value. If, if you can deliver that audience that is that passionately engaged who don't consume a lot of other traditional media, it's a great medium to reach them in. Yeah, no, you're right. It's very true. And it's the it's the cliche, I guess, of the, you know, 18 to 25-year-old male that doesn't watch traditional TV, right. doesn't watch anything. I mean, I'm, I'm in exactly that same category. You know, mm-hmm. consume everything through Netflix, through yep. YouTube, through Twitch TV, don't look at billboards, I don't even listen to radio, listen to podcasts and, and yep. music and such on Spotify. So, you know, it's the fact that you're not seeing any of these things. And, you know, I, I have heard a lot that, you know, the grey is becoming less popular with money from billboards going down quite a lot, you know, becoming a lot cheaper these days and things like that too. And there's a definitely a trend, even within esports and influencers now of, like you were saying, is not not talking about just how many followers or how many subscribers they have, but actually talking about what's their engagement rate, how many, how many times are these people returning, yep. um, you know, what's the follow through from these, how many link clicks are you getting per Instagram story and yep. how many people are actually turning up to your meetups at a store and things like that yeah. too. Well, our so. engagement rate's sort of 3 or 4% and a traditional sporting company, for example, would be 0.01, 0.02. So yeah. It's quite a, a proportionate level higher yeah. than, than um, what you'd get in other fields. So um, being able to put a brand into that mix and get a brand that type of engagement is something that they often wouldn't do off of their own social media platform either. Yeah, and the advantage is messaging, right? Like you know, if, like I was saying before, you can attach yourself to influencers and such, but that pushes one message. If you want to push how fantastic your product is, say it's a mouse or a keyboard, mm-hmm. which is you know a very basic endemic sponsor, you want to be aligning yourself with an esports team as well as influencers because the influencers can reach that mass market. But you need the esports team to say, you know, hey, I'm Jake from your um, League of Legends team. I use this as my job. So, yeah, really pushing that narrative. Yeah, and I think well, you know, one of the things that's unique and good about esports is that a partnership 
you can do that from a team level. You can do that with the players involved. It's a lot easier to make that happen than it would be in, say, traditional sport. And it's a lot easier for us to go back to the leagues and the publishers that we work with and say, hey, we've got this partnership and we want you to help us promote it. If mm. if I was a football team that had a sponsorship, let's say, with a car company and I went to the AFL and said, hey, I want you to promote this, they'd say, sorry, we can't do that. We've got Toyota as our partner. Mm. That's the end of the story. Whereas in esports, those opportunities are um, a lot more open. People are much more uh, willing to help build everybody's ecosystem up. Yeah, and, and what's your knowledge around um, professional sporting players in the traditional industry and what deliverables they have to provide to their team versus esports? So, like you were saying, uh, a, pl- it's, a player. Yeah, yeah, like a player. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. like you were saying, it's super common for any Counter Strike or League of Legends player to be tweeting, let's say they're sponsored by. A, once again, a keyboard and mouse company like Alienware, like you are, yep. it's it's very common for them to talk all the time about that, to say, hey, mm-hmm. here's me retweeting a new product that's coming out. Here's some selfies of me going live in front of the product. However, yep. if you look at the traditional AFL or NRL player, it's mm-hmm. seldom they're tweeting about how cool NRMA insurance is and showing screenshots yep. of them getting a new quote checked out and going to meetups at live stores and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so too. the commercial guidelines are a lot more detailed and a lot more structured, right from the league to the club to the player. Because a player can have a player endorsement, the club can have a team sponsorship, and the league itself will have a sponsorship. So Mm. under each of those, there's rules about what you can and can't do, both in terms of um, exclusivity. So as an example, if a league has, let's take Toyota as an example, that they have Toyota as an example, that may mean that a club can have an automotive partner, but there's necessarily a buy-in. Mm -hmm. So the team sponsor has to spend a certain amount to be able to to have that sponsorship. And a player can still have a player endorsement probably with a a car yard that's selling cars, for example, and say, hey, come and buy your car at this particular car yard. They're still allowed to do those things. Under the league's sponsorship deal, the... Uh, the sponsor will get access to the play, some players, a, lim- a num- certain number of players for activations, events, appearances, what have you, throughout the year. Now, that's all then tied into the collective bargaining agreement that the players have with the league and with the teams. And then when a team does a sponsorship, very similar thing. The team will say, right, if we've got a, let's say we've got Ford as our sponsor and they want... Yep you know, 10 appearances and they want to cherry pick from these three or four players to come along to those appearances. Then back into the players' agreement, their contract with the club and as part of being within that league says that they agree that they will do that X number of appearances. Mm. None of that really is is structured or um, that detailed within esports yet, but that's where it's heading. Um, Mm. You know, certainly see more of that thing that, happening overseas and expect it to happen here as esports grows in Australia. Yeah, and I guess it's a, it's an advantage and disadvantage for esports. It's an advantage for the first movers because you almost own the whole team and the players that are within right now. If you come into that space, you can yep. you know request much higher deliverables and such whereas yep. you know when I've got friends who work, you know, in in teams in League of Legends in Europe and such and even for years ago it was saying, okay, you know, can you bring this team out to Australia? And the answer is, well, maybe, but it has to be within this certain time and guidelines and travel restrictions and, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't doesn't exist so much in Australia yet. But like you said, it's a, it's developing. Yeah, it's yep. a market that's coming. So if if I'm uh, an esports team or, or a company or a startup that wants to pitch something to the traditional media and traditional agencies, whether it be 
for them to sell sponsorship for me or for me to get an article on news.com.au. What's what's some of the the best ways to kind of sell a narrative to these types of people? What are they looking for? And can you give a bit of a cheat sheet of, of um, you know, maybe a step-by-step process that people should reach out to them with? In terms of PR, you mean? Yeah, PR, partnerships. You know, what, what makes these companies tick? Because obviously, you know, if someone was come someone was to come to me and said, hey, I really want a sponsorship from a keyboard or mouse company. Mm-hmm. How can I get a bit of insider information on how they think? And I would say to them, for example, look at who they're currently sponsoring. You know, are they really hardcore into esports? Then pitch mm-hmm. them the esports narrative. Are they really hardcore into Navi and your team has the same color branding? Use that to your advantage and also use to your advantage what products they're focusing on. Let's say they're focusing on FPS mice over the past two years. Yeah. Pitch them your Counter-Strike team and talk to them only about Counter-Strike because they already like what they're doing, obviously, because they're doing that. Mm-hmm. So try to pitch your narrative towards that and talk about live experiences, live events, and and you know physical places because as a keyboard and mouse manufacturer, you want people to touch and feel your product. So yeah. So how do you sell yourself as, from a sponsorship perspective? Yeah. You mean? I think you're you're absolutely right. Your message has to be tailored to who you're talking to, uh, and I see you know broadly I put that into two categories: non-endemics and endemics. And I I feel like with an endemic partner in Australia. They're probably doing one, two, you know, maybe three things as a sponsorship uh, all year. So um, if a team is to sponsor us, that may be the only sponsorship they'll do in esports for the whole year, for example. Effectively, you become their activation agency. Mm. You will be creating content on their behalf. They'll be wanting to align themselves with your brand in any above-the-line media they're doing. They'll want you to be involved in all of their activations if they're going to... Uh, conferences and events and things like that so you're fully integrated into how they're bringing their marketing campaign around their products to life and you have to really show as a as a esports organization or an influencer how you can do that and it's not just about are we playing this particular game or i will stream this number of hours for you or i will do these number of tweets or whatever it's going and actually physically engaging with their marketing as well the 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 other category is the non-endemic the the brands that we're all trying to attract in that are that are from outside of the the sort of core esports audience Mm -hmm. and often they're doing a lot more in sponsorships outside of esports they're in traditional sports they're in music they're in festivals they're in um you know food and wine uh you know whatever it may be and if they're going to do something in esports it's quite likely that you're the only thing they'll do in esports, but it's only one part of their overall sponsorship um, portfolio. So you have to show why what you'd be doing in esports with them is different to what they can do in those other sponsorships. You have to show you can reach a unique audience and that that's going to provide a return on investment to them. You're probably still going to have to do a lot of those other things that you do with the endemic partner around Mm. content and around activations and around um, being engaged with them. But why would they do that as opposed to doing a traditional sport or a music sponsorship or something else? You know, what is really unique about what you deliver. So that's where understanding your audience is really important. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about kind of, you know, your work in traditional media and and agency stuff. 
at the start of your career or, or previously. And yep. then you had a bit of a stint at the AFL as well, working mm-hmm. with them as, a, as an internal esports consultant. I wanted to mention a little bit, and, and this will be tied up a bit later with the discussion about order, but AFL built a partnership with the OPL, the Oceanic Pro League, and a strong tie-in with Riot Games. And there's been a lot of pull from traditional sports people, from companies, as well as traditional brands towards Riot. Is it the safety that the Riot model provides because Riot is the start, finish, and end of their tournaments? Is that what they're interested in? Look, I think that's part of it. Um, The first part, as you say, is that Riot and League of Legends and the eSport around that is well established and in terms of scale it's one of the largest not just here in australia but globally as an esport so Mm. that's that provides a level of safety the second thing is it's pg-13 so it's brand safe yes the uh, objective in game is to kill each other but um it's in a fantasy sort of uh, realm and, and there's not the sort of blood and guts you get with some other games so mm. that works both in terms of how those traditional media or sports organizations position themselves anyway but also in terms of the brands that they're trying to attract you know a, a traditional sports company isn't getting into esports to attract um, pc manufacturers or peripheral manufacturers into their sport they're getting it be- into it because they think that they can drag the McDonald's, the Cokes, the Toyotas of the world into esports mm. through their existing relationships. Um, the the last element of um, why I think they look at working with Riot is because Riot are open to it. The, they're actively looking for partners to help them grow. So um, I think you know when, when you combine those other two factors that and then Riot are out there looking for those partnerships, it, it makes it uh, an easy choice. Yeah, it's definitely you know some something that's becoming more obvious is focusing, like you said, the PG thirteen angle yep. of of League of Legends and you know talking to a lot more people from traditional sports and brands and such. And you know it's almost a shame that Counter Strike is so popular because it becomes a bit of a minefield when you're talking with blue chip companies and large companies with. You know, the current narrative, can terrorists versus terrorists, bombs killing people, et cetera, it doesn't become the easiest thing to push. So Yeah, look, and some some brands and marketers out there are, uh, let's say, progressive in that they understand that the audience of uh, CSGO esports and the players of it, they're not worried about the brand safety element. They mm, like yeah. the game. They're, they're engaged in it. So if a brand yep. gets involved in an authentic way, they like that and they, they're going to engage with that. Yeah, but that's still a decision that has to be made at an individual level for each organisation that's looking at esports. Is is that something that they're comfortable with? Some of them will mm. be, some of them won't. Yeah, and you identified a good point there is the fact that that is that the audience is already there anyway, and they're going to be there whether they're worked right. with or not. So it's yeah. yeah, it's whether you as a as a marketer or as a brand would like to attach yourself to that messaging. You're 100 percent right. So moving on to your current role as as the CEO of Order. Yep. Um, Looking at order and you know thinking about some of the things that it's done a little bit differently, and that's what I want to focus on compared to the other teams in Australia and some abroad. So, I believe order was the was the first team in the world to go with the public crowdfunding model. So, working with Birchall to to sell um, sell some equity stakes to members of the public through yep. through a crowdfund style model. Do you think that's going to become something that's a bit more of a trend where fans can get ownership in the space? And I just want to understand a bit more from you as well about why Order went for the public crowdfunding model instead of raising more private equity. 
Well, I'll answer that question first. Uh, they did that because they see the in traditional sports, there are a bunch of other organisations that have opened themselves up to be more of a membership organisation and give mm. some equity and some um, involvement in the organisation over to the fans. And so that was really the the reason to do it. And, and like you say, it allowed us to be the first in esports to do that. Uh, we're very happy with how that went. Um, you know, we raised a, a bunch of money that's helping us uh, as we look to implement our plans. Would I see that it becomes more common? Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, quite simply, it takes a lot of work to put together a crowd fund of mm. that level. Um, and the the reality is that if you're looking to raise money like that, you're either you've probably brought on a significant amount of support already mm. um, either through your board or, or through partnerships or what have you that that's not necessarily the way that I think a lot of people will go moving forward. And is the the aim of who you were targeting to crowdfund that money, is that the same as the audience that you got in the end? Are you looking for, say, you know, general fans of the and punters who are looking to put in $50, $100? Are you looking for people who are you know maybe initially we're looking at small angel investments or seed funds where they're putting in ten to fifty thousand dollars is it a mix across the whole board yeah it, it was a, definitely a real mix i mean we had some pretty sophisticated high wealth investors put in some pretty chunky amounts of money into it but mm -hmm. we certainly had uh, a whole lot of people putting in a hundred dollars five hundred dollars what have you i would say you know the the majority of people were putting in less than a thousand dollars and even still you know, for some people that's a lot of money so mm. um from that point of view i think you know the what we've done is open ourselves up to having a large uh, investor base and and quite a lot of them are, are just coming at that grassroots level yeah so is this is this some a trend that order might be looking to continue i've, I've seen you know, publicly said on virtual that, that they are considering, you know, moving into that space again in the future. Is, is that something that's solidified? Uh, it's not solidified at the moment. It's not part of our short-term plans to do another crowdfund. Um, the, the plan at the moment is to continue using the runway we've got there. We're talking to other investors about um, sort of large-scale investments around our longer-term strategic plans, mm -hmm. probably not around a crowdfund. Yeah. And, you know, there hasn't been many companies, especially in Australia, there's there's one or two that are listed on the ASX and, and overseas there's not many that are publicly listed either. You can count them on one hand. Is that a is that something that Order's looking to in the future? Uh, potentially. It's not in our short-term plans, but, you know, never say never. Mm. And what do you what do you think are the main stop gaps that's stopping esports companies from publicly listing right now, whether it's in Australia or globally? Um, well, a lot of the larger overseas companies, if we if we focus on them, of taking uh, capital investment from uh, VC funds and the like, and mm -hmm. I think they have to prove the model and and prove a return is there before they move into that space. I mean, listing your company comes with a whole lot of um, regulations and and governance requirements that um, you're probably not necessarily looking to look at looking to do at the moment. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah, hundred percent. And even if you take, 
you know, what the public media is saying with Forbes is there's only, you know, one one cash flow positive team in the top as well. So it becomes hard when you're dealing with a lot of, you know, public and a lot of investors if you're not making money across the board. Well, it's a trend at the moment for high tech companies that have been around for a while to IPO, even though they're not necessarily cash flow positive. I, I don't think we're quite there in the esports space yet. Mm. Yeah. Like you said, you've got to, got to keep hitting that scale. So... Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on Order's relationship with Gfinity as well. So Gfinity mm-hmm. in Australia, um, coming out from the UK last year, being a um, franchise-style model. Mm-hmm. What what advantages and disadvantages do you find in the franchise model versus the others? It's something that's become quite new to esports. It hasn't really existed. Uh, you know, had a bit of a flash in the pan with the Championship Gaming Series in 2008 with things like Sydney Underground and London Min, et cetera. But, yeah, we haven't well, seen Well, the franchising is more and more common with... Overwatch League, League of Legends. Um, I think probably your question is more about uh, franchising into leagues that are independent of the mm. publisher. Yeah. Um, you know, we were the first team to take a Gfinity Australia Elite Series franchise, and and we you know, we bought into that model, and we we believed, and we believe in in the model that that Gfinity put to us. Um, we're very happy with with how we went in 2018. You know, we won. Uh, both series we won the club championships the first series mm-hmm. we won all of the team championships the second series we won two out of the three and came third in the other so you know we, we've um we've fully invested and supported in that and we're, and we're happy with how it's gone to date yeah and i know that you know fairly prominent esports lawyer in australia matt jessup is a massive fan of aligning yourself with publishers as order has done as, as well as aligning yourself with franchise leagues as, mm. as you've done as well is it once again same as the question from league of legends before is it the stability that it provides is is that's what is important to you and your investors i think you know when i go and talk to investors or to potential sponsors about what is esports obviously esports itself is an umbrella term and really mm. then you break it down into the different games and their publishers and each of the ecosystems and communities around each of those well if you look at if you break that down and you analyze that the ones that are either have longevity or have scale or look like they've got potential to get there are the ones where the publishers are actively supporting it. So mm. um, from from that point of view, you know, each of them do esports differently and they control it differently and and they run their the esport of their game differently. Some like league models, some like franchise models, some like tournament models, some are open, some are closed. You know, they're all different, but ultimately those that are actively focused on supporting the esport and growing it either from a a marketing channel to help um, attract more people to play their game or from a commercial model to to make money out of the esport those are the ones that um, that are offering the real stability at the moment Mm, and it's becoming an almost well it really is becoming a mandatory thing like you said for for publishers to to support their games these days if you Look at models like, um, you know, the Call of Duty World League, for example, when that stopped running in Australia, Call of Duty basically stopped in Australia and the teams had to go overseas, you know, similar with Heroes of the Storm and, and other games like that as well. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it's difficult for those 
publishers and and the people running the esports for them at a global level i'm sure to look at australia and see any significance there we we have 25 mm. million people it's not the it's not the scale you'll you'll get you know chinese cities have 25 million people so yeah it's a challenge for them but at the same time if they want to have a presence here and they want to grow it then then being actively involved in the esport here is a really good way to do it yeah and it's it's definitely a trade-off um, you know, we've seen over many years games publicly saying we don't want to launch Oceania servers because there's just not enough people in the region. But you know, we do have a we do have an advantage of you know being high minimum wage and and high expenditure, and you know having an audience that's that's happy to spend a few dollars, and that's been you know really replicated through multiple games, but also the peripheral vendors in the space as well. Yep. You know, kind of overperforming per population compared to most other regions. So yep. yeah, yep. thankfully we have an advantage here in Australia. People really get behind get behind what they do or break them ice a lot and have to buy new ones. <laughs> yeah. you know, it could be a bit of column A, it could be a bit of column B. So uh, I guess once again, touching on order and, and yep. something that order does a little bit different to the others. Can you explain to me part of your elevator pitch to a sponsor when they say, you know, why should we sponsor order over working with the chiefs of aunt or someone else? Well, we focus on ourselves primarily and, and don't worry too much about the others so we talk about our vision and our philosophy is around high performance and really mm -hmm. our founder comes from that background in the traditional sporting um, environment and really brought that philosophy in in terms of being professionally run and being high performance in terms of um, our staff our players and, and the way that we carry ourselves and that is transferring for us uh, in our performances at the moment. So as I mentioned, you know, we, we, we won a bunch of the Gfinity stuff. Our CSGO team just won ESEA MDL. Um, we've run the gauntlet in OPL. We've got the grand final this weekend. We're sitting top of the ladder in Overwatch contenders. So we've got really strong performances across all of our teams. Um, we're mm -hmm. really trying to do everything we can for our players. We focus on having great coaches for all of our teams um, and that is resonating um, both in terms of the audiences that we're talking to and like I said our engagement rates are really great and then when you talk to sponsors about being able to be involved in, in that and how they get involved that's really resonating as well. And can you let the listeners know about your founder and, and his history as well? Yeah so Jared Murphy uh was one of the founding members of a company called Leading Teams that did a lot of high performance um, work, particularly with AFL clubs, but he's worked with Olympic teams. He's worked with other national sporting teams. Uh, his teams that he's worked with have had sustained success uh, over a long period of time. Uh, he was at Geelong when they won three premierships, for example. He also does a lot of work with uh, big corporate companies in terms of working with their leadership teams. So really focused on building teamwork, building uh, high performance cultures, and um, as I've said, you know he's he's brought that foundation in, and he works closely with myself, the rest of the board, um, our general manager of teams, and our general manager of operations in terms of uh, ensuring that that transfers down to the teams and the players. 
And this is this is probably something a question that you get asked quite a lot, and you might be sick of answering. But I think it's important for those outside of the industry to understand, and those who are building teams to kind of follow as well. How does the structure of your organization work, employee-wise, all the way down to the players, from the board down to down to the bottom, and how might that differ, if at all, from a traditional sporting model of an AFL team or someone like that? Uh, I actually think it's pretty similar. So we have a board um, who uh, mostly part of our original founding investors. Uh, I am the CEO and I report to the board. The board mm-hmm. is the chairman. And below that, I've got fundamentally a GM of operations who looks after all logistics and he looks after our content, our socials, um, our merchandise, kind of everything sort of business related I guess and we have a general manager of teams who looks after the performance of the teams Um, within that our teams have a team manager a coach and then we have the players and um, you know essentially the three areas of the business are very similar to a traditional uh, sporting team we have the operations and the logistics of making sure that players get to the right place to play the game when they've got to play it mm-hmm. we're trying to build out the media side of our business so growing the uh, audience we have by investing in content and uh, engaging with them and distributing that on, on our own platforms and also on uh, social media and then we have the high performance side of the teams um, the final piece then is is the revenue piece so whether that's from central revenues from leagues sponsorships that we're out trying to secure ourselves merchandise other forms of revenue yeah so touching i guess on on a bit about order as well and and we'd, we've talked a lot about being australia centric right now is order looking in the short or long term to be kind of the bigger fish in the small pond of australia are there aspirations to, to head overseas i understand that it you know, there's a, probably a future discussion to be had that it can cause issues when you're working with Australia-based brands when you're trying to move overseas. But, yeah, is that possibly an option that you're looking at? Um, there's no short answer to that. I mean, I think in terms of the Australian market, uh, we're trying to rise the tide for all boats and, and hopefully mm. we're one of the bigger boats within that. But we, we our our philosophy is to work collaboratively with other teams and with the leagues to try to grow the overall ecosystem for everybody. When you look at the different teams that we've got, um, you know, certainly the Counter-Strike team is the one that is uh, participating at a global level more regularly. And you would also say within that open qualifying tournament structure that, that CS has, you know, they're participating in in a more of a global environment than just Oceania, where, which is where some of the other teams are. So you know they're probably the real opportunity in terms of talking more to a global audience more regularly. That becomes an interesting question when you've got a, a high performing CS:GO team, but you've got other high performing teams all sitting under the one brand. Are you really focused on talking to the Australian audience and therefore Australian sponsors, or are you talking to the global audience and therefore chasing global sponsors? You know, we're probably not at the stage where we want to be chasing global sponsors. I don't think we're quite ready for it, but you know, mm. certainly that's something that we think could happen in the future. Yeah, I think it's it's what a lot of people from the traditional esports side of things don't understand, and it's just something they haven't been exposed to. You know, I've 
definitely in the past I've had teams that have come to me and say, hey, we've got the number one Singaporean Call of Duty 5 console team. And I say, look, I'm Thermaltake Australia New Zealand. That means pretty much nothing to me because mm-hmm. it doesn't sell mm-hmm. anything locally. And, you know, it's like you were identifying, it's when you can scale up large enough to then be selling to Toyota globally or to Audi globally or, you know, someone yeah. like that to say, well, then, okay, that that's okay because they feed that from a global budget, not from a local budget. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you went to talk to Toyota here in Australia, their remit is selling cars in Australia. Mm. They, they are not interested in whether or not you have a great global audience, whether that's for an Australian-based team, say our League of Legends team, might have a great viewership overseas. That's not their KPI. And they're not negotiating sponsorship deals on behalf of their Asian partners or their North American partners or what Mm. have you. They're there to sell cars ultimately in Australia. And so if they're looking at a sponsorship, it's because they're looking at it for the Australian audience. So um, that is different when you go to the headquarters. If you went to, you know, the the headquarters of of Toyota or of McDonald's or Coca-Cola or or what have you, you they're looking at global sponsorships. But those the people running sponsorships in Australia and those companies, uh, their remit is Australia. Yeah, and that's why I love to talk to people about instead of taking that viewpoint, go the opposite and go hyper local. There's no reason that you can't go to Toyota of Chadston if you've got a very strong Victorian, um, you know, Victorian presence and Australian presence on your platform because then right. you can understand that you're marketing to those local people and you know you can market to local mechanics because you know they don't care about your audience in Queensland. They're only servicing cars that are here. That's right. And that has ha- that has happened a little bit in Australia before with people partnering with local councils, local government. And, and shops and there's a, a great super Australian example of next tier esports up in the Northern Territory and they partnered with a crocodile farm which is 30 minutes down the road from their internet cafe because it's perfect crocodile farm wants more kids to come along and yep. do whatever you do at a crocodile farm yep. so yeah it's the perfect place to advertise and I think that a lot of you know a lot of people and, and once again rightfully so because they haven't been exposed to it don't understand the scale of budget that a lot of these places have that your local KSC has a has a mandated marketing budget that they have to spend. Um, you know, your local mechanic is is making, you know, a significant amount of revenue from cars that are coming through all the time and, and constantly looking to expand that. And your local council actually has quite a large budget, which is, you know, usually pretty easy to find the information about how much they spend. So, you know, maybe instead of running another triathlon or such, they might look towards an esports event or, you know, working with a team that's local to their region to you know, whether it's pushing sales, pushing more people to move to the, the place or, you know, just making the current residents a bit happier. Uh, I totally agree. And uh, the challenge, of course, is not dissimilar to talking to global or national brands, right? It's just about education. And mm. uh, we we sit in the space where not a lot of people know enough about esports to want to get involved. And it's up to all of us to do that education. Yeah, so expanding on that education, it's a good segue there. So in in episode number 22, we talked to Anne Matthews, one of the co-founders of Fnatic, one of the top global esports brands. And she mentioned that um, traditional sponsors, non-endemic sponsors coming into the space has been slower to mature than she expected and then most of her colleagues and, and competitor teams have expected as well. What's the education process been like? for you talking to a brand and how is is there an average of how long it kind of takes them to come on board to even start considering esports as an option? Uh, I wouldn't say there's an average. I would just say it's not quick. It takes time. Um, you know, firstly, to get your foot in the door and have a conversation. Um, 
you know, as I mentioned before, these guys are getting a lot of proposals across their desk every day, every week, not just from esports, but from all forms of um, media and entertainment companies seeking sponsorships. So for them to take a meeting, um, you know, you've really got to have a compelling reason to cut through and then mm. um, you've kind of got to put the pitch away and just take the time to, to do that education piece and be open and honest and upfront about where the industry is at and what the opportunities are. And uh, I talk a lot about why you'd get involved with the league, why you wouldn't, why you'd do an event, why you wouldn't, why you'd do a team, why you wouldn't, um, the different ways to, to activate a sponsorship within in eSports. And, and quite often, based on how that conversation goes and, and we, as, as you're learning about what that brand's KPIs are and what their focus is, it might become transparent that, that partnering with Order isn't the right thing, but... Mm. Um, helping secure partnerships for, for a league or for an event only grows the overall ecosystem. So uh, that's the approach that we try to take. Yeah, and you're 100% right. I mean, we've used the example of Toyota to death, but using that once again, if and when Toyota comes into esports, that means Subaru and Audi, et cetera, are going to say, okay, why aren't we in this space? And I know that happens because it's definitely happened to me at, at previous endemic companies mm-hmm. I've worked at where the CEO has walked into a high level meeting with all of his marketing executives from around the world and have said, Hey, why is X peripheral company sponsoring everything in Dota two and Dota two also has the largest prize pool? Why are we not in that space? Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of the the peer pressure from competitors can I can yeah. think of, you know, two, three, four categories where I can look at all of the major leagues and events and tournaments that happen in Australia and I can think of particular brands that I know have some form of presence there mm. and um, a lot of their competitors won't be there at all. So mm. that provides an opportunity for us because we've had that first mover to try to talk to some of those other ones. But getting a first mover to take that step, an auto company, um you know, uh, a big retail company. We've seen some movement from FMCG. We've seen some movement mm. from finance. How, how do you continue to get these big categories to, um, you know, take that leap is something that we're all working on. Yeah, and I've found it um, hard even sometimes to talk to a local branch of an international company who's in esports as well and, you know, kind of say to them, hey, you know, your global direction is going towards esports. What are your plans here in Australia? And I found you know, even sometimes that's hard to get in. Yeah. I think, you know, part of the challenge there is that on one hand they can say, well, we've done something internationally. I'll I'll go and see, I'll talk to my partners internationally and see what they're doing and see how that's working. Mm. It it is still so early. So if the results aren't there yet or it's still a work in progress internationally, they'll sit and wait until they've seen that and then wait for that clear direction. So, yeah, it just takes time. Yeah, and I, and I definitely like the educational approach that you're talking about because, I mean, even from a company standpoint, it sells a non-bias. It sells that, you know, you're not there necessarily just to push your own agenda and like we said, when one company comes in, others start to come in at the same time or if nothing else, if you're in a franchise league, a lot of the money flows down anyways as being part of that whole process or, yeah. you know, even the media attention helps you Don't, out. don't get me wrong, when the opportunity presents itself, uh, I can create a great partnership with Order. But if that's not the way it's going, then don't just try to sell ice to the Eskimos, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of the way I like to phrase it to companies is I'm I'm here biased towards esports and esports only. And I don't mind where you end up investing, but you know, kind of have the open palm approach to yeah, really taking that time 
to explain to people what it is. And, and you know, like so many people have identified so far, it's been fairly slow moving, but yep. we're starting to see some action and there's been a catalyst of automotive companies coming in globally with, yep. you know, pretty much all of the big ones on board now. Yep. So, yeah, we're just waiting for that to kind of roll down into Australia as, as things progress. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you like a bit of a, a long question and this takes a little bit to set up but it makes sense at the end but I guess we've in the in the past in esports we've seen so many teams that have come up just by being a, a group of mates that have played together they've been at the top of a league they've turned into something professional they've gotten sponsors and then investors and, and catalyst into a proper organization so say the Chiefs for example is probably yep. a, a perfect example of that Order is, is probably one of the last teams that I've seen in recent times to come onto the scene seemingly from nowhere with some significant backing, some good branding, and then some good consultancy behind with some teams coming onto that point. Do you think that that's a, a trend that's not going to continue too much in the future? Is it becoming too expensive for a team to start up in the space? Do you think maybe that there are too many teams within the space? Why has there been a slowdown of, of new teams coming into the scene? Uh, I think there are a lot of teams still coming in at the sort of second or third sort of tier down. Um, certainly, mm. I know if you look around the table at a OPL owners meeting, for example, then mm-hmm. then Frank and the Chiefs are the only sort of independent team left, and and credit to them that he's that he's built that organization up the way that he has um i think when you have got that investment and that backing from other parties it makes it difficult for others to come in and try to grow organically from scratch up to that level and we see that Mm. now when we look around um in different teams that might just be focused on one particular title looking for support from the bigger organisations to help them with infrastructure, to help them attend overseas events, to help them secure sponsorships, what have you. Mm. The the challenge we've got, I guess, is that you, uh, esports is that sort of umbrella uh, term again. And within that, each of the teams is looking at what's the ecosystem, what are the titles that, that makes sense and makes value for them. Whether you're a big team, does that mean that you want to expand or do you just want to focus on smaller ones and if you're a smaller one how do you expand from a small stake it's it's not easy and i think um i think ultimately i think what you'll see is a bit of consolidation um that's probably the way that some of these smaller teams will start to get bigger yeah i think you're i think you're right as well um you know once again throwing back to episode 22 with ann matthew she was pretty blunt in the fact that she said if you're considering making an esports team today don't just simply don't consider it. it's very expensive to start one and for me, it's, it's kind of similar with investors. A lot of the time, or basically every single time an investor will come to me and say, I want to buy an esports team. I want to open an esports team. And a lot of time for me, it's, um, have you considered doing anything else? Because <laughs> there's so many teams that currently exist in this space. Yeah. It doesn't make much sense to me that in Australia, you know, there's you could probably stretch to 10 tier one teams in Australia. Do you really need 11th and 12th when you've got OPL's only got eight spots? There can only really be eight of the best Counter-Strike teams, et cetera, et cetera. So... The next question um, that I want to answer for the listeners, because this is a very common question I get asked, is how does a tier three team become a tier two or a tier one? And generally for me, my answer is attaching yourself to new games that are going to hopefully explode. 
The same way that, you know, a young talent agency will try to sign on a talent, a YouTuber that they think is going to hit that million subs within a year and see that exponential growth. And we've seen teams do that in the past. You know, in Australia, we've seen teams like Darksided who've attached themselves yeah, very strongly I mean, that's to fighting not, That's a risky, challenging strategy as well. I mean, what's the mm. biggest game of the last two years? Fortnite. Well, mm-hmm. how many Fortnite streamers are there on Twitch? How do you how do you one as a streamer make yourself stand out so that you can grow and and two as a potential investor or an agency looking to rep them be able to pick the ones that are going to be be able to grow you know that's that's quite challenging yeah um, I agree yeah I think the the other way that you look at it is you know essentially yeah you find some investment because ultimately if you've got money you can buy better players and that will help you grow now that's again a hard thing to do um one of the other things that we we do is we focus on the player development and we do that um through working with the players but also working with coaches that can can work with those players Mm -hmm. um so i think that that is an option that is available to lower tier teams um and i think at that when, when you're at a lower tier, you know, the focusing on the games that you've got players who are particularly good at and building up your profile by winning is um, not necessarily a short path to success, but it's a long-term path to success. If you're consistently good and you're consistently winning uh, or, or, you know, you're not necessarily winning, being very competitive, that makes you more attractive for for investors, for sponsors, for other teams to partner with, for leagues to invite you into. Um, so, you know, if you've got a really great PUBG team, say for example, don't try and sign on an Apex team and a Rocket League team, for example, but maybe just focus on being a really great PUBG team. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and a one, you know, one one team team, I guess. And once again, going back to the Chiefs, as someone who started off you know, super strong in League of Legends and, and stick for that for a while and, you know, die wolves in Australia and, you know, even overseas looking at MIBR with, you know, with the Counter-Strike team. But, yeah, I guess, like, touching on my point from before is that's that's what I find interesting and exciting about esports is the fact that, you know, someone else can come up, but it does take a lot of... Yeah. takes a bit of luck and it takes a lot of analysis. And, you know, you've I guess in Australia we've seen people like Crater and Loser Fruit, for example, who've been made large because of Overwatch... And then, you know, Catalyst five, six times because of attaching themselves to games like Fortnite and then yep. the power of, you know, Muse Elk working with them with, with click management and, you know, really pushing those people into the mainstream. So, and that's a lot of my answer for, you know, younger people who are in a tier three team right now that are looking to move up to tier two is just really look at the games that you're working in. You know, are you throwing money against the wall trying to compete with order with significant investment and crowdfunding in a game like Counter-Strike where players are demanding salaries that you need mm-hmm. to pay mm-hmm. and you're shelling all that out of your own pocket in your first year post-grad job? You know, maybe start looking at some of these emerging games that are a bit cheaper and easier to get into. You know, in the past it was Overwatch and fighting games. Now it's games like Rainbow Six Siege or or in the past, especially with Rocket League and things like that, and you know, provide yourself an advantage by telling a story from coming up with that one team and, and becoming much better. Yeah, I mean, the other aspect as well is, does your ambition have to be to be a Tier 1 team overnight? Do you love playing video games and you've got a bunch of mates and you want to have a team and just want to have some fun? Mm. There's nothing wrong with just doing that and just, you know, you'll get this, be as good as you can be and you'll you'll get to the level you can get to but you you may not compete with the orders or the chiefs or 
or whoever else at the sort of tier one level, but you'll have fun and enjoy it along the way. And you, you won't go broke and you won't go insane. So there's something to be said for that as well, I think. Yeah, and, and expanding on um, kind of the salary aspect where things are sitting right now in Australia, are you seeing a, an exponential growth from salaries that players, are the players asking for it? Is the market demanding it or are the teams offering it? Uh, I think it's a combination of all of the above. Um, you know, what I would say is that with the investment that's come into esports over the last few years, the players are, are definitely benefited um, and, and you know, not unduly. Um, mm. I'm not so sure that that can continue to grow um, without the further investment from outside investment or from sponsors or, or what have you, you know, we have to get to a point where the ecosystem is sustainable for all stakeholders. So, you know, trying to wrap up this podcast a bit, I guess we've been going for, for a while now. What's, what's next for order? What's coming in the pipeline that's exciting? Look, I mean, right now we're at a very exciting point. You know, we're focused on the grand final of OPL this week uh, and we're, we're heading into playoffs for um, Overwatch contenders for the next LAN series. You know, whoever wins that gets to go to an overseas event. So that's exciting as well. Um, we're heading into a really busy period for CSGO. We've got IEM coming up in Sydney in May and we're, we're doing mm -hmm. everything we can to ensure that we qualify for that. Um, uh from more of a business side of things, you know, we're we're working on converting our pipeline of, of potential partners into into new sponsors, and and hope to make some announcements soon. Yeah, fantastic. And if someone wants to follow yourself or, or your team, where can they do so? Oh uh, yeah, we're talking esports, so Twitter's obviously the best platform. Mm. Order underscore army for the team, or I am Chris Derrick for myself. Yeah, fantastic. So thanks for joining us today, mate. Is there any final closing comments that you want to mention at all? Hashtag order up. That's it. Fantastic. Order Army. Thanks, Chris. And, and thank you to the listeners for listening in today to Big Esports episode number 29. For any of the show notes or any links to Chris, his team, or anything we've talked about today, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 29, and that's the number 29. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.